as mentioned uh, early at the beginning, earlier at the beginning of the service, um, we're, we're starting this series, Hard Truths, and that's a fitting name, because the Bible is indeed full of a lot of hard truths. Right? So sometimes they are, are teachings that, that really challenge, uh, challenge us on an intellectual level. Other times they are uh, teachings of Scripture that, that our sinful natures are really going to kind of kick back against, that they're going to make us sacrifice or give up things that, that, that we really love, and, and, and that can be hard. And so throughout the, the course of time, not just unbelievers, but, but even many um, of those who have called themselves disciples of Jesus have, have, have fought against many of these teachings and sometimes simply cannot accept them, refuse to take them to heart. Honestly, though, this is nothing, this is nothing new. I mean, this isn't like a, a 21st century Western world problem. Uh, even if you go back to, to Jesus' ministry, right? What, what often was the dividing line in the sand between those who loved Jesus and hated Jesus? It wasn't the miracles that he performed. It wasn't usually that, that he was showing love and concern for people. Typically, the dividing line in the sand was the difficult truths with which he confronted people. Uh, a kind of classic example of this occurs in John 6. After what's called Jesus' bread of life discourse, now we're not going to dive into what all that was. Suffice it to say that this was a teaching that the Jews found incredibly offensive and even downright blasphemous. Many of the, the closer followers, even, simply could not stomach what Jesus was trying to teach them. And so at the end of John 6, here's what we read happened. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And Jesus tries to answer that response then in verse 68. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Right? They loved following Jesus when Jesus was easy for them. But when Jesus confronted them with something difficult, they abandoned him. Even before we really launch into everything today, though, we need to understand something. But just as easy doesn't necessarily mean good, hard does not necessarily mean bad. In fact, sometimes the hardest, most difficult things can yield the most beautiful result. This is a picture that I took, I, I think about six, I think it was six summers ago. This is from the top of Long's Peak in Colorado. The hike up there, I gotta say, um, was probably the most physically exhausting, strenuous thing that I have ever done in my entire life. It was, it was hard. And yet, it allowed me to see this, right? There are no roadways up to the top. There are no, like, cable cars that you can take like some of the other peaks in the, the front range in Colorado, the only way to get there is with a long, strenuous climb. And yet, this beautiful vista was awaiting at the end of it. And the same thing is true when it comes to these hard teachings 
of Scripture. Yes, they, they may be difficult for us to understand. They, they may be difficult for us to swallow at times. And yet through them, God does intend only what is good and downright beautiful for his people. And the first of these hard teachings we're going to be looking at this morning in Hebrews 12. Now, if you're tracking things from week to week, last week was Hebrews 11, right? We looked at some of the great uh, examples of, of faith from the Old Testament that are found in Hebrew 11. Well, now, here in Hebrews 12, this is kind of where you get to call it, I don't know, the application section. This is the, the action item that follows. So here in those first three verses of Hebrews 12, this is what we read. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, okay, so this is, uh, he's speaking of those Old Testament witnesses. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now, the life of the Christian who is living out their faith is compared to what here? Compared to a, a race that is run, right? But if you would look at that English word race, if you would compare that with what you find in the original Greek language that the Bible was originally written in, that the New Testament was written in, you would find this word, <clears throat> agon. And there is an English word that we directly derive from agon. You know what it is? A-G-O-N-Y, agony. Agony is directly derived from this word. And so that, that brings us to really what our, our hard truth is this morning. The race of faith, it's not easy, it's not simple, it's not comfortable. The race of faith is agony. Now before you start thinking in direct terms of pain and anguish, um, it's worth noting that an agone in Greek was not specifically referencing tremendous pain. It was actually a contest or, or a battle in which somebody was engaged. And for the one who truly is struggling to win a contest or a battle, there is going to be a good, healthy amount of struggle. Sometimes, yes, there is going to be agony that is involved in this, right? That's something that is, that's a truth that is also, I guess, bolstered by the directive here that we are to have perseverance as we run this race, right? You don't persevere through something that is easy and comfortable, right? When you're sitting on the beach during vacation, sipping pina coladas, you don't think to yourself, man, I just have to persevere through another couple days of this, right? When you're watching the, the sunset from the, the back porch of your lake house, your spouse doesn't say, honey, just persevere a, a little bit longer. You'll be fine. Right? Perseverance, by its very definition, includes struggle, right? 
it includes a, a degree of difficulty as you are trying to get through something because there are things that are trying to entangle you. There are things that are trying to trip you up and hinder you. There are distractions that are trying to lead you off course and away from the goal that is set before you or maybe that are just trying to get you to give up altogether. And I got to say, my hike up Long's Peak was full of those. Starting from before we were even on the trail, okay? Um, <clears throat> In order to hike up Long's Peak safely, you have to get up super early in the morning because storms form by, by mid to late morning at the top of that peak. And, well, you don't want to be the highest thing up in a thunderstorm, okay? So right away at like 2.30 a.m., the alarm went off. And right, right, right away, there was the hurdle. Do I really want to get out of my sleeping bag right now? And then once we finally did break camp, got on the trail, we had about 5,000 feet of vertical elevation gain to look forward to. As we got further up, water became scarcer. We couldn't drink quite as much as our bodies might have wanted. There were these like fields of, of stones, softball-sized stones that were practically designed roll ankles and did roll ankles in the the home stretch the last mile mile and a half it, it, it felt like there's i think it was called the shoot is the the section the, the name of this section where it was like it was almost like we were just vertically climbing up gravel somehow and then the very last part you're following like a little crack in the the bald uh slope praying that you don't miss a handhold or a foothold and start rolling back the other way because if you do you ain't gonna stop like any true struggle, there was pain. There was discomfort that was involved in that climb up long speed. And the same thing is true when it comes to your faith. There are going to be struggles. There are going to be times of sorrow and of hardship. There, there are going to be times when, when you are weary and, and when you are losing heart. But there's even more. If that doesn't feel like enough, there's even more. Because Jesus actually promises you that the Christian faith, if you are running that race of faith indeed, it is going to come with even more struggles and more hardships and more difficulties than what we would encounter in the, the general human experience, right? All people have to go through difficult things. Jesus says, if you follow me, if you are my disciple, there are going to be more. You're going to have extras. At the time that the writer to the Hebrews sent this, this letter, there were persecutions that were breaking out against God's people. Now, you probably aren't going to experience violence, imprisonment, and death living here in America, but there are pains that, that can come with this, right? Saying no to the things that your sinful nature desperately wants to indulge in, that, that can cause you a degree of, of pain and discomfort. There's very real and, and sometimes very acute pain that comes with the rejections that we might face from our friends, family members despising us because they know 
what we believe and hold dear. Jesus says that the life of one of his people is going to come with sacrificing of yourself, giving to the poor, to the needy, giving up your time, and maybe even giving to your enemies and, and doing so without expecting a shred of anything in repayment. You know, Jesus, Jesus actually has a specific word that he uses for these extras of the Christian life. In Matthew 8, verse 34, he says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must take up their cross and follow me. A cross is no pleasant thing to carry. It's an instrument of death. And Jesus says that if you have faith, you're carrying one. But I think we need to be careful at this juncture. Because sometimes Christians, and, and myself, we have a tendency to almost become like apologetic about certain teachings of the Bible that, that we know make people uncomfortable, that we know unbelievers don't really want to hear. And I think this is one of those areas, right? We, we, we can say, yes, being a Christian comes with all these blessings, but, but yeah, there's also this nasty little baggage that you got to carry with it, right? We can treat the cross at times like it is a bad thing, a negative thing. But when we look at the next chunk of verses in Hebrews, what we find is that the exact opposite is true. We go on, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father, addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. Struggles, hardship, pain, these are all what? Discipline from God. He says to treat them as discipline from his hand. So the question that we need to ask now is this. Is discipline good or bad? When your child throws a tantrum so you put him in time out, is that good or bad? When your teenage daughter comes home an hour after curfew so you take away the car keys for a week, is that good or bad? When your boss writes you up, because you just showed up late to work for the umpteenth time. Is that good or bad? Now, the way that we answer that question in the moment usually depends on which side of discipline we find ourselves standing, right? When we're on the receiving end of discipline, 
We tend to say, well, that's not right, that's not, that's not fair, and we can usually come up with some kind of excuse as to why our actions were justified in this circumstance. When you're on the other side of discipline, though, or when you are viewing it from more of a, a detached position, I think we understand that discipline done properly is good, right? It is meant to benefit, in fact, the individual who is undergoing the discipline so that your, your child, so that your, your teenager, or maybe so even so that even you learn something from it and wind up with a, a stronger moral fiber and character as a result, right? So that you become a more honest or charitable or hardworking or obedient or fill in the blank with whatever virtue you want kind of person. Now, in your relationship with God, which side of discipline are you going to be on 100% of the time? You don't get to discipline God, right? You're always going to be on the receiving end. And so because we don't like to be uncomfortable, because we don't like the pain that that involves, we can tend to think that there is something not right about it. We can maybe even thumb our noses a little bit at God. But is the discipline bad or is it good? It may be even a harder truth for us. That discipline, discipline from God's hand, is always meant to serve for your good. Objection. Isn't discipline meant for those who are doing something wrong? Isn't discipline meant for those who are, are breaking the rules? Disciplinary committees at schools do not exist in order to figure out how they can reward the rule, the rule keeper. They exist to punish the rule breakers, right? Well, what if, what if I am, am doing what is right? What if I am running my race in faith and even make a, a good godly decision when it is a difficult thing to do, and I still receive hardship as a direct result from that? How is that right? How is that fair? We got to understand that there are really two categories of discipline, right? There is, like the kind that we already looked at, there is the reactive type of discipline, right? Somebody does something wrong, there are consequences. But there is also a proactive type of discipline, right? Discipline that is meant to train you, discipline that is meant to prepare you for something that you know is coming. The woman that you see on the screen there, um, her name is. Elaine Thompson-Hara, maybe you've seen and heard of her before if you're an Olympics junkie, because she is a five-time Olympics gold medalist, sprinter. Now, if you would look at um, her day-to-day -day routine, you would probably say, like I did when I read about it, you'd probably say, this is, this is a pretty disciplined woman. Right? She, she gets up early and exercises, not just kind of like general exercise, like like I might do for 10 minutes in the morning. No, no, no. She has like a strict routine that she goes through, all of these specific uh, sprints and workouts that she rotates through on a day-by-day -day basis. And then if you look at her diet, she's not cramming Doritos and Cheetos and Pop-Tarts and ice cream down her food hatch. No, she is perfectly balancing out to the best of her ability all of the different categories, making sure she's getting just the right amount of whole grains with the, the fruits and vegetables and the lean meats with very little dairy, right? All of this is discipline. What's she in trouble for? 
nothing, right? No, this is discipline that she goes through in order to train, right? To prepare her body to be the fastest woman in the world. Well, the writer, the way that the writer to the Hebrews is primarily using the word discipline here is in that sense. Yes, God does sometimes discipline in the form of sending consequences, right? Because, well, he doesn't want us to fall in love with sin, and he wants us to understand that sin causes pain both to ourselves and to other people. Primarily, though, the discipline that we're talking about here is hardship that is used as training. Training so that you are prepared to run this race of faith the way that Elaine Thompson Hera runs on the track. Right? So, so that when Satan comes and stands by as you're, as you're passing and he holds out all that junk that he knows you have loved to consume in the past, you can hold up a hand and say, no, 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 I'm on a steady diet right now that consists of the good and liberating commands of God. And so that when worldly treasures and stuff are trying to distract you from the goal and the course that has been laid out for you, you can say, no, no, I'm going to keep my eyes fixed where they ought to be. And so that when the aches and the pains and the muscle cramps and and the fatigue starts to set in, you have that perseverance to push through, to plow forward toward that good goal that has been set before you. Ultimately, what's God's purpose in doing this? First Peter was written to Christians who were suffering active and violent persecution. And here's what we read in verses 6 and 7. In all this you greatly rejoice. So now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. What's God doing? He's refining you like gold in a furnace. When you refine gold, what are you doing? You're you're burning or melting away all of the, the impurities in that gold ore that detract from its value and its worth so that you end up with a higher quality of metal. God is refining you, burning away perhaps the, the baggage of guilt that you've been carrying with you, burning away the many immoralities that live in your heart and in your life melting away from you your dependency on money or stuff or the approval of people, melting away from you your love of the world, refining away anything in you and around you that might trip you up or hinder you from reaching that goal that he has set before you. That's really what we find here in these last verses of Hebrews. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Going through fire is going to hurt. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Struggle, hardship, pain. These are seeds that God uses in order to grow 
a harvest of righteousness and peace in your life. Now, some of you might be sitting there thinking, well, pastor, that's all well and good. But what if I just don't feel like I can go on anymore? What about the, the stretches of weeks or months where life is just burning me out? What then? What about when people leave or betray me? What about when sin is terrorizing and paralyzing me? What about when I am weary? What about when I have lost heart? What about when my arms are feeble, when my knees are weak, when my feet are lame, and I feel utterly disabled? I'm told to run this race of faith, but my goodness, what if I just can't run anymore? When you find yourself in that place, and, and you will if you haven't already, it means that you've probably forgotten something important and need to remember it. It means that you need to remember where to fix your eyes in all of this. We go back to those first verses that we read. Where are you told to fix your eyes? You're not told to fix your eyes on the pain and the sorrow and the fear that you have. Dwell on those things and, and they will devour you utterly. You're not told to fix your eyes on the people around you because even the best of them will betray you or leave you at some point. You're not told to fix your eyes on your sin and your guilt and your failures and to wallow there. Stare at them and, and they will smother you under their weight. You're not even told to fix your eyes on how well you are running the race lest pride and arrogance become your pitfall. You are told to fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Understand that your race of faith is meant to be run with Jesus as the constant fixture before your sight. Here he's called the pioneer and perfecter of faith. You might also say he is the beginning and the end of it all. Understand that without him, there is no race of faith. There is only uh, death in sin, and then at the finish line, eternal death in hell at the end of this life's journey. And here's why. Because your strength will never be strong enough to atone for your weaknesses. Your love can never become pure enough to undo the many hatreds that you have shown in life. Your sacrifices will never be selfless enough to make up for all the selfishness that you have demonstrated. Your training can never be complete enough. And yet, despite all of our unfaithfulness to God, right? Without, without, without Jesus, you don't even get on the track. And yet, despite all of this unfaithfulness, God says that he still remains faithful to you. And so he became a man. 
the descendants of, that, that great cloud of, of witnesses, those heroes of the faith from the Old Testament, and yet far greater, the one, in fact, to whom they looked forward with anticipation. And as he ran his race to rescue us, Satan was right there trying to tempt and snare him along the way. But Satan utterly failed every time. Enemies and even unfaithful disciples tried to hinder him from the course that, that he had to run. But he remained completely unmoved. Through hunger and thirst and mobs and mockery and abandonments and betrayals, he persevered. In the home stretch, he even endured the cross where he was hung naked and spit-soaked as his enemies jeered at him and gloated over his dying body. Even through darkest, blackest hell he went as he bore the weight of your weaknesses, of your lovelessness, of your selfishness. We have to ask the question, why? Why would, why would God leave heaven to do this? Willingly. Did it for the joy that was set before him. His goal. Finish line. You. Me who he knew would be standing right with him at the end. Immersed in, in the glory of his Father's presence and in the eternal joys of heaven. Yeah, we've seen some hard truths today. Good, but hard. Here's the beautiful truth, though. Jesus suffered ultimate hardship so that we will enjoy ultimate happiness. Fix your eyes on him, not just because you need him for some strength along the way, but because he is your strength from beginning to end. And through him, we can and we will continue to run this race until we arrive at the goal, the glory that he has prepared for us. Amen.